Welcome to the DTB podcast for June 2016, volume 54, number six. My name is David Fizakli, and I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm DTB editor-in-chief. In our editorial this month, we discussed some of the issues surrounding the use of herbal products. And within this broad category, what do we include? So what, what we're looking at here and what we're trying to tease out is the difference between traditional herbal registration, THR, which is this new registration for products that have a history of being used as a treatment for certain conditions and just other food supplements which have got no quality assurance and which are unlicensed. So at the moment, there seems to be uh, two choices for herbal remedies. One is you go for a full product license. It's a herbal product that would go in the same route that a licensed drug would go, so it would have to show evidence of efficacy and safety, clinical trials, and all the rest. Or for those products which you say could go through the THR process, it is just about showing a body of traditional use, but there's no evidence of efficacy in the sense that we'd understand it from clinical That's trials. That's right. So to get, to get a THR registration, you just have to as you say, show a history of evidence of use. You don't have to show any evidence of efficacy. But the THR guarantees a certain quality of the finished product. And that was that has always been the issue. A lot of herbalists have said, look, it's it's the issue we have is there's anyone can peddle these um, supplements as herbal remedies, and yet they may not contain anything like they say on the side of the packet. Uh, and that was one of the driving forces to introduce the THR um, regulation and as, and as you say so the, the THR regulation requires evidence of long-standing use and a quality assurance around the production of that. But it is only for those products that you might use for minor ailments uh, where there's no medical supervision managing symptoms of a cold for example. Correct so echinacea, arnica those are all examples of herbs that have got a THR. So then we've got another group of botanicals which are sold largely as food supplements? That's right. So, you, you know, there are a lot of companies out there which haven't gone down the THR route who are just selling their product as a food supplement. And as a consequence of that, uh, what we've discovered looking at some of the evidence is that many of these products don't even contain the herb that they say they do on the side of the packet. And uh, we give an example of ginkgo where um, one researcher looked at a number of different products available in the UK and found that a large number of them didn't have the, the ginkgo extract that one would expect in, in the product. We need to be clear, these aren't being marketed or sold with medical claims. They're just sold as supplements that people might like to take for general well-being. It, that's right, and this is why there's like a double jeopardy here, isn't there? Because you can, um, there's a jeopardy of does this product do you any good anyway? And there's another jeopardy that actually even if it, that product might do you some good, you might not be getting it with the package that you've bought from over the counter somewhere. So at the moment, any solutions? Well, I think I think uh, the THR is a, is a move in the right direction. I think there, there needs to be, I suspect, some more development of of perhaps policing of any food product i mean anything that we put in our mouths one would like to think there's some regulation as to that it that, that, that what it says on the side of the packet is actually what's in it and i think at the moment unregulated food supplements are an area where there really isn't enough control or regulation over them and i guess it also be interesting to understand whether when 
people are faced with these choices in supermarkets or health food shops, whether that's this distinction that we have talked about with THR and and non-THR, whether it actually means anything to anyone. Well, I think you're absolutely right, because I think what we've struggled with just looking at this is that actually it's not clear if you go online whether a product is THR or not. So lots of work still to be done. OK, thank you very much. Our first main article reviews a new drug for management of heart failure. Sacubitral valsartan, as it sounds, has got two components. Valsartan will be familiar uh, to most people as angiotensin II receptor antagonist. What about sacubitral bit of it? Yes, yeah, so sacubitral is an angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor and Neprilysin has an impact on a number of enzymes and uh, sacubutyl is actually a prodrug, so it's metabolized to a different compound, uh, rather lovely uh, sounding drug called LBQ657, and that inhibits a number of enzymes leading to an increased concentration of endogenous natriuretic peptide, so you get an enhanced diuresis. So the idea is that that's working on one aspect of uh, heart failure and your uh, Valsartan is working on another part, and the two together synergistic and give you a good response to treatment for heart failure. We have come across the concept of neprilysin inhibition previously. There was a drug called omopatrolat, which was developed as an antihypertensive. What happened to that? Yes, that um, caused a lot of problems with angioedema, um, and as a consequence of that, uh, it was never licensed and it was withdrawn. So this is, I think, another attempt at using this clever little bit of pathway to improve uh, patient outcomes. So we've got these two components acting, in theory, synergistically. What about the evidence that it makes a difference? What are we basing it on? So we've got a big study called Paradigm HF. This was a one of these sort of mega uh, trials, uh, over a thousand centres, forty-seven countries. About ten and a half thousand patients finally went through the randomisation. And uh, what this study did was it compared patients on sacubitril valsartan with patients given uh, enalapril. There were some aspects to this study. They didn't trial this drug in patients who hadn't already been on an ACE inhibitor. So there was a little bit of a pre-treatment option where they moved everyone over to enalapril first of all, and then only those who tolerated that were then moved into the main trial and randomized to either uh, sacubutyl, valsartan, or enalapril. So there were two run-in phases where you had enalapril, then you had the sacubutyl valsartan, and then you randomized the whole trial. So that there's something about selecting response, possibly. And then once in the main main trial, outcomes? So the primary outcome here uh, was a combination cardiovascular death and first hospital admission for heart failure. So that was the primary outcome. They also looked at some secondary outcomes, all-cause mortality. Uh, they looked at a symptom score, AF, atrial fibrillation, and delay in renal uh, uh, deterioration. And the doses they used in the study... Yeah, so, so they compared Nalapril 10 milligrams BD with the highest dose of sacubutyl valsartan. So patients were started on the middle dose of sacubutyl and then stepped up to the highest dose at four to six weeks. So one might suggest that there's a, 
a little disparity there between the two levels of dose between these patients. And that, you know, one might say, are we looking at a drug-specific uh, set of outcomes here, or are we looking at a sort of uh, drug uh, treatment level uh, outcome? I mean, fair to say that the enalapril dose is not unusual in that that's often what's used in clinical practice when enalapril was more widely used and similar to the dose that's been used in other studies. So it's not an unreasonable choice, but it just doesn't quite seem com- comparable with a high dose of I think that's right. And I think one always gets slightly twitchy when people say, here's one drug we used to use to treat. Let's compare two new drugs with this one drug. And we've seen it with in other situations. And it's just always sort of slightly jars a little bit because there's plenty of history where we can look back and find it was a dose response that we were actually seeing, not actually a drug response. Nevertheless, the outcome was quite impressive. Yep, the outcome's good. So primary endpoint, look at absolute uh, relative risks. The, so look at um, the primary endpoints. That was cardiovascular deaths and first hospital admissions. Over 27 months, about 27% of the enalapril group um, had that primary outcome compared to about 22% in the sacubutyl valsartan. So um, if you work out the numbers needed to treat from that, it works out at about 21. So if you treat 21 patients with sacubutyl valsartan rather than enalapril for 27 months, you'll prevent a cardiovascular death or admission to hospital. So pretty pretty impressive. We're saying that the trial was stopped early because of one of its pre-specified um, review points showed that the trial had hit the target of that's right. So they had an end, they had an event-driven endpoint of cardiovascular deaths, and they used that to decide when to stop. So the primary outcome was good. Secondary outcomes. So um, all-cause mortality, uh, likewise, was was a, a positive outcome for sacubutril, with thirteen point three percent of uh, that cohort of patients dying in the twenty-seven months versus sixteen and a half percent in the enalapril group, so once again you can work out a number needed to treat of about 32. Admissions likewise were down in the uh, sacubutyl valsartan group, but when it comes to things like uh, the symptom scores and AF and delay in renal uh, impairment, there was no difference between the two groups. And in the subgroup analysis, now of course always careful about subgroup analysis because obviously you're dealing with ever smaller numbers, but in some of those some of the primary outcome did not reach statistical Yes, th- this, this was, was quite interesting because um, they offered subgroup analysis, uh, but what they found was that actually if looked at the over 75-year-old age groups, they found that there was no benefit in that age group from sacubutyl valsartan for the primary endpoint. Likewise, they suggested that in the Western European population, also there was no benefit for the primary endpoint in the sacubutyl valsartan group compared to enalapril. So some little question marks about how representative, or if you translate this into a standard UK population, where people with heart failure tend to be much older at first diagnosis, will you see the same benefits? And this is always the problem, isn't it? it because interestingly enough, I think the average age in this study was around 64-year-olds. And of course, as you say, actually in the UK, it's usually a much older population. So uh, one has to be slightly careful about taking this population and uh, imagining that it fits for ours. And harms? 
Harms, really the very standard ones, um, postural hypotension was uh, an issue, as you might expect, as was uh, hyperkalemia and renal dysfunction, but but very much in line with what you expect and very much in line with enalapril. And one of the, the, the concerns with the drug, as we said at the start, was angioedema, and the drug is contraindicated with ACE inhibition, so you can't use the two together, and you have to stop ACE inhibition at least 36 hours Yes, it's a, it, that's a funny one. They they just say, you know, if, if the patient has been on an, an ACE inhibitor or an, a, um, an angiotensin 2 receptor antagonist, you need to leave it 36 hours before you start sacubutyl valsartan, although this is not a drug currently that NICE suggests that we in primary care should be starting. This is a drug for secondary care, they suggest. Okay. Uh, so... At the moment, your feeling is that this isn't something you'd be initiating? No, and I think if you look at the cost differential, it is enormous. So we're talking about uh, 40 to 80 times more expensive than current treatment options. So this is a, this is, I think this is a drug that we've just, it's just popped its head above the parapet and we really don't know whether it's got legs or not at the moment. Cost effective according to NICE's criteria, therefore it's past their threshold, but given all the caveats, not one for routine use just yet? No. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month looks at a well-recognised series of, of problems, frailty, polypharmacy, and the question of deprescribing. So what's the background? So what we're talking about here, and I think, you know, I think we all recognise this, for the last, I would thought, decade, two decades, quality of prescribing has usually been measured by are you treating someone you know has that person been put on a uh, on a statin if they've got a cardiovascular risk has that person been put on a beta blocker if they've got uh, heart failure has that person on uh, got, got a, a treatment in health corticosteroid if they've got asthma all the all the methods we've used to measure quality tend to have been are we treating patients and of course what's happened with a aging population with increasing comorbidity is we're now seeing a real ballooning of the number of items a patient might be taking. So um, some Scottish studies have showed, for example, that, that at least 5% of patients now take 10 or more different medications. And I think what we're recognising is that whilst polypharmacy can be a really good idea and many patients benefit from that, there are equally likely to be many patients who are not benefiting from their polypharmacy and actually maybe being harmed by their drugs they're taking. And so we're, I suspect that we're going to see the pendulum swing and deprescribing is going to be an increasing element of quality prescribing in the coming years. And one of the interesting uh, elements of, of the overall review of the impact of polypharmacy is not just the number of medicines, but also relates to the amount of time that anyone with multiple morbidity and lots of medicines actually has to put into managing their condition. So the more conditions, more conditions you've got, the longer, you, the greater number of appointments, greater number of interventions, and it just is a, hu a, a big burden on, on people. So I think you're right. The more we can start to rationalise, then the better. So this issue of deprescribing, does it mean stopping everything? It might do, but it's, I think it's more about the review and actually being in a position where you say, are these drugs still the right thing for this patient? And, it's, and sometimes it's actually very simple. 
patients can actually move outside the licensed indications for a drug. So there may be a drug that's only licensed in patients of a certain age or who've got a certain renal function. And if a patient moves outside that age group or whose renal function drops, then you've actually got a drug that you're using off-label. And immediately you've got a situation where the evidence for that drug's effectiveness is, is discounted. So there's an element of, of a number of sort of shells, if you like, to a review. So it may be that when clinicians and increasingly pharmacists as well are looking at drugs, they need to be asked themselves, first of all, are there drugs here that we simply shouldn't be using? It's now outside the license. But then also there are risk benefit sort of balances to be made. And that's where you must involve the patient and their relatives, because there may be situations where if you actually show a patient the benefit they're getting from that drug, they might say, well, actually, doctor, I don't think that's enough benefit for me to want to take that great big chalky pill. I'd rather actually not take it. Uh, and that's a value judgment that only the patient can make. So I think deprescribing is about, first of all, doing no harm. And then it's about trying to understand the patient and their family's assessment of their of their values and what they consider to be at risk and and play with that and it's always it's always surprising to me how often in clinical practice you might see one patient and say to them we're giving you this drug to pr try and prevent a stroke but it might increase your risk of bleeding let's say looking at anticoagulation and one patient will say well my ex father or, or my, you know had a stroke and the last thing I ever wanted a stroke therefore I really want to take that drug someone else might say that I really don't want to take this rat poison. I don't care how much benefit it gives me. I just don't want to take it. And so I think, you know, one has to take that patient experience with you when looking at deprescribing. And this concept, which we touch on of frailty and understanding what that means, is that a simple thing to do? It, uh, frailty is a very difficult thing. And I think it's something which we're going to see more and more volume of, of research around and about. And I think as GPs, we see frailty all the time, but what we don't see is how we can make it an objective measure of that. Now, we do actually introduce in our article the British Geriatric Society uh, Simple Frailty Score, which I think is actually a really useful one and is helpful um, in allowing uh, clinicians just to get a feel for, for the frailty of their patient in front of them. And a way of filtering out that those who might need a priority review against those who are perhaps less urgent. Absolutely. And I think there's, there's a number of different ways that you can um, deal with this. Many, many systems suggest that, you know, more than 10 items in a frail person is an immediate reason to look at those drugs and see if you can review them. And at the start of your medical training, were you taught how to prescribe? <laughs> I might have been done. I might have missed the lecture. Um, of course, I think that's the interesting question, isn't it? We are, we are, well, we were taught not only how to prescribe, but there was no concept that you stopped prescribing, you know, hypertension, diabetes. It was treatment for life. And I think deprescribing is another skill that will have to be learnt and taught and, and, and particularly around making or allowing uh, clinicians to feel confident about stopping a medication. But at the moment, that isn't part of routine undergraduate medical training. No, not at the moment. OK, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com and to provide any comments or feedback, please email at dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.